subjectivity is more or less what belongs to the realm that we call the ego and ego consciousness. It's what the ego feels and thinks and makes up and um, um, uh, opinionates and surmises and, and whatnot. But the objective psyche is something that subjectivity experiences outside itself. So it's a, it's a, you go inward and you end up being objective. Uh, you go through subjectivity in a sense. So you penetrate through a layer of subjectivity and then you come upon objective phenomena on objective objects, maybe you could call them. And that's the way Jung thought about the archetypes, that they aren't subjective. They condition subjectivity. They give subjectivity. It's coloration, it's flavor. They, uh, it's like culture. Culture is uh, uh, conditions us, but it's also objective in the sense that it exists outside of the individual. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm John Price, your host. Today's participant is Dr. Murray Stein. Uh, when we began talking about recording this episode, I I thrown out a couple of book ideas that I had, I had read, or actually books of Murray's that I'd read. And he said, uh, Minding the Self was the direction to go. So his book, Minding the Self, Jungian Meditations on Contemporary Spirituality, it did not disappoint. I'm grateful, Murray, for you writing this book, but also for having the conversation. I'll give you some information on uh, on Murray. So Dr. Stein is a graduate of Yale University with a BA and a Master's of Divinity. The University of Chicago got a PhD and the C.G. Young Institute in Zurich with a diploma. He's a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He's been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology from 2001 to 4, and the president of the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich from 2008 to 12. And you can look him up at murraystein.com, M-U-R-R-A-Y-S-T-E-I-N. Thanks so much for your time, um, Dr. Stein. I'm, I'm really grateful. Now to other things. Music. Today's music selection is by the band Halu. You can look them up at halou.com. The uh, one member of this three-piece is Count, and I interviewed him on episode 28. Check that out. Uh, the band, I, I really wanted to use this band. I used two selections. One is called Separation. You heard it just a minute ago. It's from uh, the album Wholeness and Separation from 2006. And at the end of the, the conversation, I play the song Professional featuring Robin Guthrie from, their, um, from, from the album Halu in 2008. Again, check them out at halu.com, H-A-L-O-U.com. The theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations, in particular the song Clouds, but I've used a lot of their music. Look them up at modernnationsmusic.com. And again, for this podcast... It's thesacredspeaks.com. And there's a lot of information on there about what this, uh, what this is about. And in earlier episodes, I've given plenty of information about this process, so I won't belabor the point any longer, and I know I already have. So uh, listen to earlier episodes if you're curious about this process, but uh, for now on, we'll just try to get as quickly to the conversations as possible. Um, and one note, though, I've got a show coming up on the 16th of February, with Rodney Waters. Uh, I interviewed him on episode 11. We have, uh, I've written seven songs and we've collaborated to put together this show. Um, Rodney has created some uh, piano music and borrowing, some, borrowing from some classical tunes. 
and uh, and we're we're having a lecture on we're going to lecture on Jung's Red Book, in particular about creativity and the unconscious, and then perform. We're going to play these songs that are inspired by that particular story of the Red Book. I'm really excited to do this. If you're in Houston on the 16th of February, come on out. We'd love to have you. What else? I think that's it. So thanks for joining. And uh, as always, read these books. <laughs> They're enriching. And, uh, and my, my constant recommendation is to uh, get deeper into music. Get a good set of headphones and listen to the entire catalogs of these artists. It, it changes things a bit. We're way too used to listening to just songs. And it's part of that immeasurable. It changes you in ways that you can't really foresee. It has for me. So welcome. Thank you. I'm grateful for you being here. And we'll leave it there. Dr. Murray Stein, thank you. It's a gift to be able to join together with you. Um, I, I, I've just fed my daughter and wife oatmeal. It's 7 a.m. here and it's 2 p.m. there. So it's, I'm thankful for technology to give us the ability to do this. I'd like to certainly start where you'd like to start, but one of the things we agreed upon for our conversation was I was going to read Minding the Self, uh, your book that was put out in 2014, and I'm, I'm really glad I did. I'd happened to connect a couple of dots that I've been working through right now. Um, in, in particular, I would suggest, and if, if we don't end up starting here, I, this is just one of the places that I was very, um, very connected with. You have in chapter 11, initiation into the spirit of the depths. And that to me was a, a, a part of the book that, I don't know, I just, my feeling tone was, <laughs> was on fire. And uh, I certainly want to talk about a couple of things. The, the butterfly story was such a good example of synchronicity and um, initiation into the spirit of the depths, ethics, and individuation. And I completely realize we could talk about that for two years. Uh, but does, any, does anything kind of, any thread that we need to pull on, where, where does it begin for you? Well... You know, this, the, uh, the phrase, the spirit of the depths, um, comes from Jung's Red Book, where um, at the beginning, he, um, at the age of 37, he, he says, um, he realized he'd been living with the spirit of the times, and now he felt himself called by the spirit of the depths to um, undertake a an unusual kind of exploration into an invisible world, an imaginal world, a world of, of um, hidden uh, in hidden away in the unconscious, as he as he refers to it. Uh, spirit of the depths is not visible to the world and is not experienced clearly, at least in the collective mind. So it was a what we call an individuation journey, and that calling uh, to follow the spirit of the depths uh, was very decisive for him. And I think um, it's not so different from what people experience when they go into um, uh, Jungian analysis and are gripped by... Um, could say the voice or the hand of uh, an invisible spirit within them to follow uh, on a path that they didn't even know existed. So following dreams and um, um, fantasy and, or fantasy thinking, as Jung first called it, and then active imagination um, puts us in touch with um, a kind of spirituality individually that may resemble somewhat uh, uh, the great religious uh, symbols and 
doctrines and uh, teachings, but is uh, experienced as an individual uh, individual uh, journey into the depths of one's own soul. So that's what I was speaking of as uh, initiation into the spirit of depths that one is uh, called or drawn into uh, and then uh, confirmed, uh, that's the initiation, uh, in, a, in a way of uh, experiencing the depths of, of life, uh, living on this planet that uh, uh, is, I guess what we would call, uh, you know, individual spirituality. It's a call to individual spirituality and not to join a church or a collective institution. Not to say that people who join and belong to collective institutions don't also experience spirituality or initiation. Certainly, initiations are a part of collective life in the in the great traditions, churches and um, uh, temples and mosques and everywhere that. Uh, religion is practiced, initiation is always a part of it. And it implies a series of uh, gradual um, steps toward, I guess what you could call enlightenment. Uh, in some traditions it's called enlightenment, but toward seeing um, a um, behind the scenes, so to speak, and into an invisible world in spiritual reality. So uh, initiation into the spirit of the depths is, is being drawn into, into that kind of um, uh, experience, the invisible world, you could say. Yeah, it's tough for people to, I just find a lot of people struggle with even that language of the invisible world. And one, you begin the third line of uh, of chapter eleven, is throughout modernity thinkers have speculated that humans were growing out of their need for religion, and by this they often meant not only getting over the childish need for a parental institutional religion, but outgrowing as well the wish for uh, I can't read my handwriting here. Uh, something answers and solutions and the riddles of life. In other words, spirituality and oh, magical. It's magical answers and solutions to the riddles of life and the words, spirituality in general. And I think that for me, where, where I am right now, that's such an important, I've been really thinking a lot about modern, postmodern, pre-modern thinking and what science and rational thinking has to say and has contributed to, or, you know, maybe even in quotations contributed to human evolution. Um, but but I think as psychotherapists, one of the things that we see oftentimes, is, I, I know I do, is that people really cling for these rational answers, and the rational intellect gets them bouncing back and forward, back and forth between kind of two ideas. Both are not very desirable from their perspective, and, um, and that's overwhelming to them. And I, I, I think one thing I like about your book so much is that you, you put a... You don't go too far into the poetic, um, but you, you go into it so that it really enriches what's lacking in our rational thinking. I wonder if you could talk about that for a little bit. Let me start by saying that uh, um, Jung discovered that there are two types of thinking, um, or at least he distinguished between two types of thinking. One is what he called directed thinking, and what is what he called um, uh, non-directed or, or intuitive or fantasy thinking um, or image thinking. Um, some people have said this corresponds to the way the two hemispheres of the brain operate. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but directed thinking is logical thinking uh, that proceeds along 
uh, a very uh, clear path from A to B to C, uh, looking at causation, what causes certain effects to happen and under what conditions. And scientific experiments are based on this type of, of thinking, that you, if you set up an experiment and you um, apply a certain amount of energy uh, to uh, the material in a, in a test tube, um, uh, something very predictable uh, will happen because, and then there's an explanation for it, the um, molecules or particles are energized and, and that creates certain effects and uh, a certain line of development. So rational thinking is directed thinking, it's logical thinking, and it's very important to, um, to be able to use that in order to figure out largely um, how to get from A to B. Um, you have to take certain steps if you want to go. I live out in the country in Switzerland. I want to go to the city. I have to leave at a certain time, get to the train station. If the train arrives at a certain hour. I have to get on it, and then I get to Zurich at the uh, time I want to be there. Um, uh, imaginal thinking uh, operates in a different way, and it operates with, um, you could say, images or um, imagination. Uh, and to some extent, good scientific thinking also needs this kind of imaginal thinking in order to make... Uh, new breakthroughs, when, when people would ask Einstein, how did he come upon his theory of relativity? He said he did a thought experiment, which he imagined himself uh, moving at the speed of light or something. Uh, and, and so he was using his imagination and then he transferred that into rational thinking and uh, mathematical thinking and so on. So, it isn't that the two oppose each other, but they are different. And where imaginal thinking might take us can be very contrary to what we experience in the physical world. Um, it takes us to uh, uh, myth, fairy tale. Uh, if, you, if you read the great religious texts and you read them with a a rational mind or a logical mind, uh, you can see that they are nonsense. When Spinoza, for instance, read the Bible uh, uh, at, at a very early age, he saw, using his rational mind, that uh, it was a bunch of superstition and nonsense. And uh, as a result of speaking about that, he was excommunicated from his synagogue <laughs> because he said, that doesn't make any sense. That isn't how the world works. Uh, miracles don't happen like that. Well, uh, rational thinking will um, not understand what symbols are referring to or what they're, where they might take you. Uh, but a symbolic reading of, uh, of a religious text will do for you is very different from what a, a literal, uh, rational, reading of the text would do for you. In other words, the symbolic reading will take you into a dimension of uh, poetry, feeling, uh, meaning, uh, uh, experience that uh, you wouldn't um, have access to uh, with your directed rational thinking. And um, rational thinking uh, has dominated um, Western European culture uh, for two, three hundred years since uh, the 17th century, basically, the Age of Enlightenment, and has pushed more and more to the side um, uh, symbolic thinking or non, quote, non-rational thinking. Um, and the religions uh, have participated in that to some extent. Um, Protestantism, as it was laid out in uh, uh, 
not so much in Germany under Luther, but in Switzerland under Calvin, uh, Jean Calvin and uh, Ulrich Zwingli, um, really based itself on a very uh, literal, rational uh, approach to life. So they stripped all the churches of images and symbols, took out the stained glass windows, and uh, relig religion was reduced, you could say reduced to uh, listening to the word and um, understanding uh, how to live ethically and uh, what to believe in a, in a rational way. But the, the whole symbolic aspect of religion was stripped away. And um, this produced a, a very powerful culture, a very successful culture in a way, on a material basis. Uh, and um, so uh, more and more, uh, as it became so successful, uh, more and more was uh, symbolism and an appreciation of symbolic um, understandings pushed to the side and reduced to hocus pocus or nonsense or or metaphor or um, you know that's a kind of poetic way of thinking but it isn't literally and um, uh, um, scientifically true so what do you do with miracles what do you do with something like the christian belief in in life after death or resurrection or um, the story in Genesis of creation, uh, or the book of Job, or any of these, you know, I mean, uh, um, the uh, religions really have depended upon a human being's uh, ability to think symbolically and to live according to certain symbolic understandings. That isn't to say it's necessarily a more successful way to live or a more materially successful way to live, but it does provide something that rational materialistic thinking cannot provide. And that is a sense of meaning um, other than rational meaning. Sometimes it takes so long to understand what words really mean. We go operating with the assumptions. A word like symbol, <clears throat> you know, I've read the collected works, and I, I know how much time Jung has spent trying to uh, help the reader understand what he's meaning by the term symbol. And, and so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sensitive to any listener, and I'm wondering if we could actually take a symbol, for example, the cross or whatever occurs to you, and, and look at it as as a sign and as a symbol and to differentiate those two things so that we can kind of put some skin on that bone of what symbol actually means. Well, if you take the cross, for instance, and you see a cross uh, on a building, it tells you something. It tells you, oh, that's a church. <laughs> it's like a street sign. Um, it isn't that it's without meaning. It, it directs you it directs your mind toward a certain kind of meaning that that building has been, you know, and, and it can be beautiful, it can have lots of value, but it doesn't have any symbolic meaning. It has a literal meaning. The cross means it's a church, and that's a particular kind of institution, and it has a legal standing and, and so on and so forth. If you experience a symbol as a symbol, um, it brings you um, to a place that uh, uh, Jung would speak of and, and uh, 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 mystical thinkers or uh, certain scholars have referred to as numinous, a numinous experience. Um, Rudolf Otto wrote a book um, published 1917. He was a German theologian, scholar, uh, and he wrote a book called Das Heilige, Das Heilige, the Holy, the Holy. Uh, and that was translated very poorly into, um, into English, the idea of the Holy. It isn't the idea of the Holy, it's not an idea. Das Heilige is an experience of the Holy. 
And what, what uh, Otto was talking about was certain experiences he himself had when he uh, was in some foreign context. And he gives two examples. And one was he was on an island somewhere in the Mediterranean, I can't remember which one, and on an early Saturday morning, he was walking through the old Jewish quarter. And he heard uh, uh, some rabbis chanting from a basement their morning prayers. And he said he stood there and heard that, and the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. And he knew he was in the presence of something. He was in the presence of a spirit. He felt it. That wasn't his tradition. He wasn't Jewish, but he felt a spiritual presence. That's the invisible thing. It's a presence. He had another experience going into a cave in India, um, off the coast of Bombay, I think. And in that cave, there were carvings of the Buddha and, and um, or some Hindu symbols, I think maybe Ganesha, the elephant god or something. And the morning light was coming and shining at a certain angle. And uh, again, that was an experience of the holy, as he said, das Heilige, and the numinous. And he said it's a uh, fascinance at tremendum. It's fascinating and it's tremendous, and it has a, a kind of fear element in it. So this experience of the holy is common in every tradition. And when rituals are done, or you're in a certain place and you're open to that experience, uh, you will feel the presence of, of the holy. Now, Otto thought in his philosophy, he wasn't a psychologist, but in his philosophy, he said, there is a presence. There is a metaphysical or an ontological presence there in that moment that isn't there in ordinary life, in everyday life. It's there and then it's not there. It's a felt presence. So that sensitivity to something numinous, mysterious, uh, revelatory, that's the foundation of the great religions. Moses at the burning bush, that's not an idea of the holy, that's an experience of the holy. He heard a voice. The voice told him who it was, named himself. And that's Jung's experience that you read about in the Red Book. When Jung followed the spirit of the depths, uh, and he met these imaginal figures, he didn't know who they were, they named themselves, they told him who they were. And there's, there's, there are a couple of incidents there where he's confronting, talking to, um, in a dialogue with a figure named Elijah. And he gets kind of irritated with Elijah and upset a bit. And he says, oh, I, I don't want to listen to what you're saying. You're nothing but symbols, you and Salome and all this. You're nothing but symbols. And Elijah turns on him and says, you may say we are symbols, but we are as real as any real you know. We're as real as the people you know. So that was Jung's experience of a symbol. It is a reality. It is something that speaks to him. It is a presence. It's not a metaphor. <laughs> metaphor is a mental operation, you know. My love is a red, red rose. That's a pretty notion and you can go somewhere with it and you can even feel something and you can smell it and you can enjoy it and it's aesthetic. Um, so a lot of poetry is like that. But some poetry will take you into an experience that uh, is more than metaphor, it's symbolic, it's a symbolic world. And, um, and, and that was Jung's approach. He said a symbol is the best possible expression or representation of something that isn't conscious. It's in the dark, it's invisible. Um, and it, it has a, a fullness, an energy, a roundness to it. Uh, that makes you stop in your tracks. 
So people throw the word symbol around as though it's, um, you know, we, we see them all the time on the streets and in advertising and whatnot. Well, those aren't symbols. They're images. They're, they can do something to your brain neurologically. They can turn you on or turn you off or entice you or excite your appetites or this or that. So they, they have a power to them. But the experience of a, of a true symbol is a numinous experience. And that's what I write about in that butterfly story where uh, this butterfly was a butterfly. It was literally an actual <laughs> insect butterfly. But it carried, a, a, um, it carried a numinosity when we saw it um, behave the way it behaved toward us and the way it did with us that we, we simply had to say there's more to it than just a butterfly. There's a presence, and we, that was our, our friend Magda, I call her in the book, I think her, her name was Irene, actually. She was a, she a former nun, had been a friend of ours, and she died. And um, we had this experience with the butterfly um, a couple of times. And so, uh, but it, it's, it's an experience you never forget. Um, now, rational thinking can tear that to pieces. It's what you can call the murderous intellect, uh, just rips to shreds any uh, kind of affirmations or um, thoughts you might want to uh, draw out of such an experience uh, because it isn't, uh, it isn't uh, rationally defensible or provable and you can't repeat it in a laboratory. But I've heard so many of those stories uh, after I wrote that of people saying, oh yeah, I've had one like that. Uh, <laughs> I was giving a talk uh, not long ago and um, about spirituality and analysis. And uh, after in the discussion, this young man who is a trained um, uh, Kleinian analyst, I think, uh, British school psychoanalyst, Said, you know, I, I I was trained in this school, and I I uh, I'm a very you know modern person. I don't believe uh, in a spiritual reality or anything like that. But I did have a strange experience. Let me tell you what it was. And so he told this experience of um, of being visited by the presence of his dead mother, who died a few days before, and she was embracing him. And. Uh, pulled him out of his depression, and he said, I, I could just feel her arms around me. I knew she was there. Well, uh, I would believe that experience over my theories uh, about what's possible and what isn't possible, and what's real and what isn't real. Uh, if you go with your experience, and uh, I, I think people will have, most people will have experiences something like this. They tend to discard them, not talk about them very much because they're not um, part of the mainstream right now, but uh, miraculous interventions or doors opening synchronistically, mm -hmm. you know, synchronicity is a kind of miracle experience where causally unrelated things come together in a certain moment and um, create something new. You don't call the moments of creation in time something new that would not have been possible if these coincidences hadn't taken place at a certain time hadn't happened. So um, uh, a spiritual world, you could say, is becomes visible to us when we have these experiences, visible in an imaginal sense, not not with your senses, but with your just take your imagination as being a kind of um, um, sixth sense, let's say, or you, you can experience something with your imagination that's equally real to what you experience with your eyes or ears. Uh, it's tricky ground because, you know, people imagine all kinds of nonsense on the other hand, too. And uh, I had a friend once who's was very um, uh, skeptical about synchronicity. And he said, oh, you know, paranoid schizophrenics 
think everything has meaning. <laughs> they see a light flashing. Oh, that's because uh, somebody's watching them. Or, but what Jung had in mind with with synchronicity was uh, not something paranoid, but something observed and experienced that opens up uh, a uh, possibility that meaning is given, not made up, not, not a mental construct. It's not a social or a psychological construction, but a discovery of something that exists. Meaning as, as objective, objectively real, that you, you can discover or see at certain moments. I had one of those moments when you were talking about uh, the the realness of the imaginal. That's a I relate with that a lot. The, I th I think from a perspective of science and consciousness and kind of depth work, these two words and I know this is completely reductive, but it it seems to me like if if you're if you're looking at these dual structures that exist in these various intellectual or academic arenas one core duality is is between experience or subjectivity and knowledge you know what you hear in a lot of the you know scientific communities is the is the primacy of knowledge and what you'll hear in kind of the more um, philosophically idealist or um, depth psychological traditions is the value of experience and subjectivity and that those those things go to battle um and, yeah. I, and I, I like what you were saying about because i i keep stumbling upon this with various people that i'm interviewing about all these scientists you know rational scientists that end up landing on some dream or st strike of insight or weird event that they see in the outer world that connects deeply with something that's going on they've been chewing on in the inner world and um yeah well you know subjectivity is a is a uh you know subjectivity can be reduced to nothing but uh whatever you feel or think you know that's your subjective uh uh um opinion or your subjective view of things and uh you have to um, uh if you if you want to make something more of that you have to show that it um is valid uh, uh by doing testing by doing finding a, um you know a statistical confirmation or something like that jung took that uh notion of subjectivity, though, to another level, when talked about the objective psyche. Uh, subjectivity is more or less what belongs to the, the realm that we call the ego and ego consciousness. It's what the ego feels and thinks and makes up and um, um, uh, opinionates and surmises and, and whatnot. But the objective psyche is something that subjectivity experiences outside itself. So it's a, it's a, you go inward and you end up being objective. Uh, you go through subjectivity in a sense. So you penetrate through a layer of subjectivity and then you come upon objective phenomena on objective objects, maybe you could call them. And that's the way Jung thought about the archetypes, that they aren't subjective. They condition subjectivity. They give subjectivity. It's coloration, it's flavor. They, uh, it's like culture. Culture is uh, uh, conditions us, but it's also objective in the sense that it exists outside of the individual, and it conditions many individuals. Um, and so the archetypes have a kind of objectivity that's beyond cultural um, constructions in Jung's theory. Okay, uh, and so he can speak of the experience of objectivity as an inner experience. Uh, when scientists talk about objectivity, they're mostly talking about uh, uh, 
studies that have been done and confirmed and or have not been disconfirmed or can't be disconfirmed uh, and seem to prove their validity through further studies. Um, and it's all out there and it's all mostly in numbers um, um, or a statistical um, accumulations of, uh, of facts. Um, so it's impossible to experience objectivity in that sense. What you, what you have is a bunch of, of, um, uh, of numbers. You don't experience numbers. You think with numbers. Now, if a number becomes a symbol, that's a different matter. Um, there might be a, Jung thought of numbers in two ways. One is things that you calculate with, and the other is um, an arrangement of archetypal structures that have qualities that are associated with numbers. So the, the number three has, has a symbolic value in certain, in certain uh, symbol systems, the volume, uh, the number four. Uh, Mary Louise von Franz wrote a book called Number and Time, and she talks about the qualities of the numbers not the way mathematicians will use numbers to do calculations, but the way numbers have operated in symbol systems and what their, what their meanings have been in those systems. So uh, the number one, the number two, the number three have symbolic values. Um, and those have been arrived at through um, uh, generations of people who have found that those numbers have those qualities as an individual subjective subjective in the sense that some individual concocted or came up with what the number one means or the number two means symbolically it's been uh, um, it's been uh, experienced that way and felt that way and, and, and discovered that way by many generations of people so you have number mysticism. Um, and um, astrology is like that too. What these stars are objects in the sky that you can send rockets up and, and, and look at them through telescopes and study them objectively. Uh, but in astrology, these, these uh, planets have qualities and, and have meanings that have nothing to do with a physical object per se. Uh, but have been uh, uh, have been uh, have found have been found to possess attributes, not by single individuals, but by thousands of individuals who have used this symbol system uh, and correlated with certain events in people's lives that has a remarkable consistency to it. Uh, so, what is that? That's a kind of objectivity. Nobody's been able to prove that astrology uh, has scientific validity, to my knowledge. I think many attempts have been made, but I don't think any of us really succeeded. Uh, and yet astrology continues to be a very uh, active, quotes, science in the, uh, in the world. And there are very serious astrologers who, and there are students of astrology who... Um, find it a uh, very meaningful way to uh, think about history, collective history, individual history, personal history. Uh, but those aren't physical forces that are, you know, the planets are exerting on our, um, just to our knowledge, at least on our neurons or our uh, physical beings. And yet they seem there's a correlation between what they're doing and what's happening to us. <laughs> so uh, these are are interesting mysteries to to entertain, uh, and uh, it, it all has to do with with meaning. Murray, uh, I, I wonder right there if you could. There's I've got two two things. The first is that it seems it seems you even said it that what Jung was talking about with the nothing but. I'm one. I'm curious about what you'd say there, and 
another question that may take the duration of our time. At least we can follow the thread. I'm wondering about your, as far as you'll talk about it, your struggles or insights <laughs> that you've gained from leading an institution that is grounded upon the kind of deeper depth <laughs> psychology and kind of the, the difficulties in walking that line between the imaginal and the institutional, if those can be set up as a dyad. Well, um, organizational life, um, I think no matter in what context is, is very similar, you know, across all the instances of it, whether it's a religious organization or a business organization or a professional organization uh, or a club, uh, a yacht club or a polo club or a golf club. Um, the, uh, what you get in an organization is um, an intermingling of, of psyches and uh, largely egos who um, that, that are ostensibly have a common uh, goal, a common enterprise, a common interest, and uh, but also bring with them uh, their own personal histories and their shadow material and their, you know, the, the, the phenomena of the psyche splitting, projection, uh, uh, defensiveness, they bring their neuroses in. Uh, it's, uh, you know, like a family. Uh, family is fine as long as they don't get together too often. If they get together, Christmas or Thanksgiving, they often tend to get into um, difficulties, conflicts, fights, splitting, projecting, remembering, bringing back old history, um, and repeating their patterns. Now, uh, it's possible to have more mature organizations or less mature organizations. The less mature ones tend to fall apart after a period of time. And one of the uh, conundrums of history, in my mind, is how do very, very um, often dysfunctional organizations, religious organizations, manage to last so long? Mm -hmm. uh, Christianity is, is a relatively young one, but 2,000 years. Judaism, uh, three and a half or 4,000 years, Hinduism, 5,000, I don't know. Uh, I mean, some religions tend to die out and uh, disappear, Egyptian, Greek, and so on. Um, but some organizations have a, a lot of sustainability built into them. And... Um, a religious, religious person would say, well, they stay alive because the spirit is still there with them, no matter how fallible the individuals are. Um, St. Augustine wrote, you know, about the two kingdoms. There's the church on, on the ground of this world, and then there's a heavenly kingdom. Uh, there are two dimensions. And as long as there's enough of the heavenly present in the earthly, um, it stands a chance to continue stumbling along. Right now, it's Catholic Church at least going through a big crisis because of child abuse issues and sexuality, but they'll survive. That's uh, in their history, it's a, you know, a bump in the road. But um, so, and, and what carries them is the symbol. Uh, a living symbol will carry an individual or a collective a long way. It doesn't mean they're immortal, that they will last forever because the symbol may wear out after a while and be exhausted, fade away. But um, uh, in the Jungian community, uh, I was a, uh, I've been president of a number of organizations, including the International 
um, IAP, the International Association for Analytical Psychology. And it's a very diverse group of people from many different cultures, languages, um, walks of life, backgrounds, um, social classes, from high to low. And what holds the whole thing together, in my experience at least, is a, a common, um, uh, I guess, a, a common feeling for what Jung called the self, um, however that's interpreted. But there, there is a sense that uh, uh, an agreement, let's say, a fundamental agreement about the human psyche, that there is a depth dimension to it, that it is made up of um, a complexity of levels and layers, and, and that it has a purpose, that there is a meaning to it. Uh, Jung had the sense that the unconscious uh, has direction, uh, is goal-oriented, and it's a kind of... Um, you could say that the Jungian community is grounded in that vision. And there's a lot of disagreement about what kind of person Jung was. Some people love him, some don't like him so much. His personality had certain quirks and features that aren't acceptable to everybody. But at bottom, I think what he was holding up was a, a vision of the human being that has... Uh, a lot of value and staying power. And the people who come into that and read Jung and kind of get, get gripped by it um, tend to be able to draw on that and stay with it, even though they may have disagreements on a personal level with other Jungians. There have been a lot of splitting in the Jungian community. Institutions divide and split and people get into fights. And, but they don't give up that. So you have two institutes, but they, they still agree on basics. Uh, the, the individuals, the personalities don't get along or they have sharp differences of opinion. Um, but the common, and, um, the common element holds them together. And so when I was, um, I'm not so much involved in these organizations now, uh, these past couple of years, but when I was, I would always appeal to that uh, or try to hold on to that and, and trying to hold uh, to a course, which is to provide um, access to this vision that Jung put forward in his writings and in his, in his, like, in his teaching, his work, uh, a method for um, development of the individual uh, on psychological and spiritual levels and uh, that we're all committed to to that no matter what else we might think about each other um, we're committed to the idea of individuation i think that's really fundamental that people develop and have access to um, within themselves have access to um, these energies and, and um, uh, dimensions that offer uh, meaning and wisdom in the long run. Um, so the organizations aren't very different on the on the on the organizational level, but I think they um, they will um, show their their staying power based on the values that they uh, are founded upon. That doesn't mean that golf clubs can't last for a long time too. People love to play golf and it's important for them and golf has a kind of symbolic meaning um, for some people. It isn't just a game, but it's a symbol of, of life. And I can't help but think of marriage here marriage yeah i mean and that i interviewed a fellow a while ago we were chatting about uh, the religious life and when people share that symbolic relationship in their religious orientation they, they you know yeah. they, can, they can last longer they have this kind of shared 
understanding so, of the yeah. world, orientation. Yeah. Well, it just makes a lot of sense from a systemic perspective that you have those concentric circles and in the marriage mm -hmm. and in the family and in the, you know, what, whatever institution that you, that you may have, um, the inevitability of those conflicts that they arise. And hopefully in a marriage, especially you have a container and an orientation that doesn't so much personalize the conflict, but is able to transcend it. And I, I so that seems like a perfect opportunity and I'm, I'm aware of our time. So you, you be the brakes here. Um, that seems like a perfect opportunity to talk about the tension of opposites. Right. Well, you said there's one basic set of opposites, one basic pair. And um, I think it's in agreement with uh, what other traditions have found. Um, and that is the um, the opposition between the spiritual and the material. When Jung talked about the psyche, he said uh, it's like a, a spectrum uh, from infrared to ultraviolet. On the infrared side, it's rooted in the material world, in the body, and in the instincts and everything that goes on in the body and physicality in the material world. And on the other side, the ultraviolet side, it's rooted in, he said, the spirit, the spiritual world. And from that side, we get our archetypal infusions and archetypal images and ideas and you know, the big ideas, the um, visions, um, uh, inspirations and these mix together in the psyche and they sometimes conflict with each other so you find a con frequent conflict between um, spiritual values and physical needs and instincts um, everybody has has to deal with that in some way or another um, now bringing them together into a um, you can't say harmonious, but bringing them together in a uh, in a formula of some kind that that works for you and that satisfies both ends of the spectrum that that you can be. You can live your animal, as Jung says at one point in the Red Book. You have to live your animal. Uh, your, your physical being has to be um, taken care of and live your uh, your spiritual life uh, both and that's a struggle you know sometimes it goes more to one side sometimes more to the other religious fanatics tend to emphasize too much the spiritual side to the neglect or the demonization of the physical side um, aesthetes and um, uh, materialists you know consumerists and all that tend to emphasize the material side too much and neglect the uh, the spiritual side so holding this tension of the opposites is and, and working with them the inevitable conflicts and the interactions between them and the dialogue and the arguments uh, is a way of um, advancing actually the individuation process. If you go too much to one side, you kill off the other and then you get into a stagnant, repetitive um, um, position of just doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, if you let them interact with each other, you get more creativity into the mix. Uh, uh, you create problems and you create issues, but it it brings about something new. So this new thing that comes about through the through the dialogue or the or the holding the tension of the opposites, as Jung said, this third thing is a 
an individual solution to that problem that's that's one of a kind it's it's creative it it works for you it might not work for anybody else but it's the way you've found to live your animal and live your angel or your spiritual life both uh, not always in harmony but in uh, uh, with enough integrity to uh, more or less satisfy both sides um, that seems to me um, Jung's uh, suggestion for how to live this life on earth. We're spiritual beings and we're physical beings. And there is an inevitable tension between those two parts of ourselves. Um, so uh, I guess I would conclude our conversation by saying uh, try to hold the tension of the opposites and uh, let them enter into a dialogue and into a play and a creative interaction with each other and you will live much better uh, than if you try to privilege too much one side over the other. I think that's a perfect way to conclude our conversation, Mary. Thank you. Okay, John, it's been a pleasure.